Hello, and welcome to NapTown. I'm your host, Susan Neville, and our guest for this initial series of interviews is writer Dan Wakefield. Mr. Wakefield is the author of nine nonfiction books, two memoirs, and five novels, including the best-selling Going All the Way. Bill Moyers called Dan's memoir Returning a Spiritual Journey, one of the most important memoirs of the spirit I have ever read. Of his book Island in the City, The World of Spanish Harlem, James Baldwin wrote, Dan Wakefield has a remarkable combination of humility and tough-mindedness that makes these streets and these struggling people come alive. Over the next few episodes, we'll be talking to Mr. Wakefield about his life, including his deep friendships with writers such as Baldwin, Anne Sexton, Joan Didion, and Kurt Vonnegut, and his interviews as a staff writer for The Nation, The Atlantic Monthly, The New York Times, and other newspapers and magazines, with such luminaries as Bobby Kennedy, C. Wright Mills, Dorothy Day, Adam Clayton Powell, Joan Baez, and Golden Meir, some of whom became good friends. Again, I'm your host, Susan Neville, and welcome Mr. Wakefield back to NapTown. Okay, today we're going to be talking about making a living as a journalist. When I got back from Israel, uh, the nation made me a deal to write two articles a month and get $75 a week, which was great. But I realized I needed to do more than that. If I was going to make a living writing for magazines for a while, I needed to write the big form. The thing that journalists wanted to do, that writers wanted to do, was called the profile. And Esquire was the leading place where you wrote these great profiles. And it was the beginning of the new journalism because you could say I, you could use the first person singular, you could do funny things, you could do quirky things. So I had no contacts at Esquire, nor did my agent, who was a very nice guy. And he was mainly, he dealt in books and didn't have magazine contacts. So I just wrote something on spec for Esquire. It was some, I can't remember, but it was something about Hemingway. And God, Esquire had Hemingway himself. So I don't know why they would have taken mine, but I knew it was good. And some young assistant editor passed it on to the articles editor who was a great guy named Harold Hayes. So he didn't take that, but he said they'd be interested in anything I had to suggest. So I did a lot of research, and I proposed writing an article on Adam Clayton Powell, Jr., who was the main black leader probably in America. This is before Martin Luther King. And so I got the assignment. And it was really a big deal to be doing that. And Powell was a very interesting guy, very arrogant, which his constituents loved. They loved that he out-arrogated the white people. 
And so I followed him around, and I remember he was going to take me to dinner, and first it was going to be at a, he said, oh yeah, we'll go to dinner and talk, and and he suggested a really good restaurant in Midtown, at a high level. And then at the last minute he said, oh no, I don't want to go there, let's go to this place in Harlem. And it was obvious he wanted to be seen as, a guy frequenting and supporting arm wrestling. It was also obvious that he'd hardly ever been into this restaurant, and they were so shocked to see him, and they were bowing and scraping, and all, Congressman, what can we do for you, Noah? And he ordered liver, and we're eating our dinners, and the maitre d' comes over and says, Congressman, how's the liver? Powell looks up and he says, it's liver. <laughs> and I go, he deigned to taste their liver. But the big part of it, luckily for me, because I love covering trials, and trials, you know, it was better than an off-Broadway play. And the drama was all there, and the characters and everything. Well, Powell had to go to trial for uh, tax evasion, or that's what it was alleged. And he got the greatest lawyer of that era, who was Edward Bennett Williams, who was a lawyer in Washington. I forget, he was the lawyer of the time. And so I went to this trial. Murray Kempton was covering the trial. So it ended up that I would have lunch with Murray Kempton, Adam Clayton Powell, and Edward Bennett Williams. Two of us had three names. But right. <laughs> anyway, there was the most dramatic moment of the trial was when Williams was cross-examining the government witness. So this was a witness who worked his whole life for the income tax or the IRS, and Williams started out speaking in a very genial manner with him and just going over certain points and questions and answers, and jury is watching, fascinated, and then Williams says, Mr. So-and-so, I'd like to read you a, a key passage from the Internal Revenue Service Handbook this is one of the passages being cited for trying Congressman Powell for tax evasion. Let me read this passage to you. So Williams reads this passage, which is practically incomprehensible. And then Williams says to the expert witness, do you understand what that said? And the poor guy said, no. <laughs> and as you looked up, there was one of these big clocks that the hand, minute hand moved when a minute was up, and it goes click, and it looks exactly at noon, and Williams says, I move, we recess, Your Honor, for lunch. And it was like this great moment. And so we go to lunch, and Powell is just, ecstatic. He said, oh, Ed, what a great job. You ruined that guy. And Powell says, listen, he says, there was one woman on the jury 
whose heart was breaking for that guy. Don't get excited. And you saw Williams is seeing everything. Mm-hmm. You know, Powell is like me seeing the dramatic moment, but Williams was great. And he got Powell off. Powell had no, you know, it was cleared of all charges. And in fact, later, Edward Bennett Williams asked if I would want to ghostwrite his memoir called One Man's Liberty. And I went down to Washington and sat in his basement of his house and read this manuscript. Actually, I thought it was pretty good. But my agent, James Oliver Brown, a great guy, and he didn't want He had three names, too. Yeah. And he looked like a guy with three names. And he didn't want me to write this because he wanted me to get going and write a novel. And so he said I would do it for 50% of the thing, which was outrageous. And Williams wrote back a letter and said, under the terms you propose your client would do better than I would with this book. So that was the end of that. And the profile was called Adam Clayton Powell, The Angry Voice of Harlem. And everybody liked it, and he liked it. By the way, in the course of that, I went to some meetings of his church, and at one of the meetings of uh, constituents, he's very dismissive, even of his own constituents. Yeah, you know, hurry up, what do you have to say? Yeah, that'll work, won't work. But there was one man, he was completely honorable too, that he respected, he gave this man total respect. And it was a young man, and I remember that the young man wore boots that came up to his knee, and uh, a regular jacket, not a tie and jacket. And all I knew was this man was named Malcolm. Uh. <laughs> And I only later learned it was Malcolm X. Malcolm X, that's great. So I did get to see Malcolm X. I wish I had gotten to hear him speak. But at any rate, so coming off the triumph of the Adam Powell profile, I proposed to Esquire that I do a profile of William F. Buckley Jr. And at this time... I'm trying to think of the exact year. It must have been 1960 or 1961. And Buckley had just a year or so before published his first book, God and Man at Yale, which caused a huge storm of love or hate or controversy, which he was charging that Yale, like many elite institutions, was loaded with liberals who distorted the history of America and everything else. So, and there should be more God at Yale, not these dismissive atheists. So that caused a huge turn, and right after that, he started his magazine, National Review. So, at this point, He was looked at as a real 
sort of fringe guy and wild man character. He was not at all, you know, he later became really part of the American establishment. But at this point, he was the wild guy. I remember I called him up. I said, uh, Mr. Buckley, this is Dan Wakefield. I've been assigned by Esquire. Try to profile of you. When can we first meet? He said, tell me, Mr. Wakefield, is it to be a profile or an assassination? <laughs> and he knew that I wrote for the nation. And I said, oh, profile, sir, profile. And I said, you can even ask Murray Kempton. He'll tell you that I'll be fair. And Buckley says, ah, getting out the big guns at once. <laughs> so the whole thing was like that sort of jousting repartee, which was Buckley's forte. And I remember one of the embarrassing things for me was he asked, he proposed that we have lunch at the Yacht Club. And I remember I had a pair of white pants, and I wore those to the <laughs> Yacht Club. It was the middle of winter, so <laughs> I felt like a fool. But anyway, but Buckley was very interesting. He was really a lot of fun to hang out with. He was a very nice guy. I got to meet his sister Priscilla, who was the managing editor of National Review. I liked her a lot. And at that point, Joan Didion and John Dunn both wrote reviews for National Review. That's how they started getting published. And then I later sort of compared notes and said, basically, me writing for the nation and them for the National Review was not so much political, but we just wanted to get published. But anyway, Buckley, we went over all the points of his ideology and his controversies, and I wrote this piece, and I was really trying to not make fun of him or put him down, write a real piece. And one of my things I was most proud of, afterwards he wrote me a long letter. It was two or three pages, I remember, on yellow paper. And he said, well, I got this nuance wrong. I didn't quite understand the role of this guy or that guy, but ended up saying, I appreciated your fair-mindedness. And I was very happy about that. And so Buckley became like a journalistic friend. I would see him. You know, we all used, there was a group, we all used to see each other at rallies and political events. It would be me and Murray Kempton and Buckley and Joan Didion, who Kempton referred to as the correspondent from Vogue. <laughs> and she always had a raincoat and a fashionable scarf, a very pretty scarf. And I remember once meeting Buckley at a JFK for President rally, and I had a little JFK pen in my lapel. And Buckley, who's a tall guy, looked down at my lapel and saw the JOK button. He says, ah, I see you're engagé. <laughs> so, and he was very helpful. And he was always, uh, somehow came up sad that I was an atheist. 
And then I wrote Returning, a spiritual journey about my going back to church in Boston. And I sent him a copy thinking, boy, Buckley will be happy. He wrote back a very critical letter. And he mm. said, I was very disappointed in your book. I felt it was insufficiently evangelistic. Uh. And I felt that was the strong point. Right. And I've always tried in writing about spiritual things to say, this is what happened to me, not necessarily this is what should happen to you. Could yeah. you just say a little bit about how you went about writing profiles? Mm. Did you have a method? Yeah, I determined early on that there were two kind of interview methods. Uh, and I thought of them as the knife method and the slob method. And the knife method I learned when I was in Israel, and there was a government press conference after Israel had bombarded Gaza and claimed that it had only bombarded military targets. And there were, one of the journalists there at the time was Homer Bigger, later the New York Times, I think at that time he was with the New York Herald Tribune, but he was a famous Pulitzer Prize reporter who famously stammered, but that didn't stop him from asking what I thought was the twist of the knife question. And so after this government spokesman said, that Israel had only bombed military targets in Gaza. Homer Bigger gets up and says, was the b bus station a military target? And there was a squirm around and so on. But he was really great at that kind of thing. And I had a friend a year older than me at Columbia named Jerry Landauer. He was the editor of the Columbia Spectator. That was quite a thing. That was the college version of the Shortridge Daily Echo. It was really good daily paper. And uh, Jerry Landau, and what the editor before Jerry, when I was a sophomore, the editor of the Columbia Daily Spectator was Max Frankel. And remember, he always wore a suit and tie to school. And I knew that he would someday be editor of the New York Times, and he was. Yes. He became editor of the New York Times, and I interviewed him for New York in the 50s. But I was not good at that. I Maybe I was too insecure or shy or something. And, and also, it just I never quite could see the way you twisted the knife. So I did what I considered the slob interview, that I just wanted to get the person talking. And the longer they would talk, the more material I had. And I had a technique, especially when I was covering stuff in the South, the civil rights stuff, and I'd be interviewing the white citizens council guys, and I would and this is before tape recorded, so I was writing everything down in a notebook. And when they said something really awful, I would 
put my hand up like I was not writing. And then as soon as they said something and knew me, I'd write down the awful thing. But I was doing that once with the head of the White Citizens Council in Montgomery. And I remember he said some really nasty, bad thing about black people. And I held my hand up like I wouldn't write down. And he looks over at me and says, write that down, boy. <laughs> so it was a different world. But it's funny to think about taking notes. When I wrote New York in the 50s, I was living in Boston. And I made a lot of trips to New York to interview friends from that time. And I remember I went to New York. I had dinner with Gates Police who was writing for Esquire at the era I was. And I sat down, this was a dinner, but to me interviewing him for the book. And the first thing he said was, I hope you don't have a tape recorder. And like, to him, that was the new, not serious, not real way where you wrote something down. And of course, it's true that when you wrote it down, you believe it was in your head. It was not like if you tape record something, you'd be thinking about 40 other things. And when you were writing the interview, you couldn't do that. It seemed like, I mean, I did interviews, not at that time, but, you know, before people used tape recorders, and I loved writing things down because it seems like you focus more um, because you have to remember a yeah. lot of yeah, quotations you had, in your head at the same time you, that you're you listening. You had to run back to the motel and type it up. I did, right. Otherwise, you couldn't read your own writing the next day. And yeah, that was part of the whole thing. And sometimes your memory would fill things in as yeah. you were typing it up. Yeah. And, by the way, when I first met Solis, I had written the Powell, I think the Buckman, we met at an Esquire party, and we started, he'd already started writing some of the great pieces he wrote, and he said, let's go to P.J. Clark's, have a hamburger and a beer, and so we went. No point of us going, at some point he said, Dan, um, when were you born? I said, 1932. He says, oh, thank God. I said, what? He says, you're not younger than I am. (laughs) (laughs) And he was one of the most competitive guys, but in a nice way. I remember when there was a story, he had a party at his house, and he was saying that he could write a better review faster than anybody else. And there was a black guy there, a black young reporter who said, well, I can do it better than you. And Gay said, well, we'll have a contest. We'll see right now. And he brought down two typewriters up. He staged the whole thing and, you know, (laughs) showed that he could do it faster and better. But he really was terrific. And one thing I will never forget that I'll always love about Gay Talese, when I wrote my first novel, Going All the Way, and it did well. It was a literary guild selection, July of 1970. And I was in New York for a publication party, and Talese invited me for a drink at his house. 
and we sat out on a little terrace just on East 61st Street, and he brought me a gin and tonic, and he held it up, and he said, well, here's to you. He said, all kind of guys, all kind of reporters say they're going to write the novel, and they never do, or it isn't much good, but you really did it, and I honor you for that. It was really, it was a genuine and great thing. I don't think anybody else said that, any of my contemporaries. Do you think if you had taken on the Ed Williams book that you would have written going all the way? It's probably a road not taken, unfair question. Oh, it wouldn't have been that big a deal. Yeah. And I think in the end I wouldn't have done it because I couldn't see what more I could do than what he had written. It was really pretty. It just needed an editor. It wasn't like a project where you start from the beginning. Right. But then, well, I had a great relationship with Harold Hayes, the editor of Esquire. And you know what I thought a lot about is these great magazine editors, to me, Harold Hayes of Esquire, later Art Cooper of GQ was like that. Whatever I wanted to do, he would do with one exception. And Bob Manning at the Atlantic was like that. George Kirstein, the publisher of the nation, was like that. The editor was. I didn't get along that well with the editor. I mean, we just, we didn't have any, we just weren't on the same wavelength. But the role of these editors was to say, hey, I love your work, I believe in you. Wasn't it they, the real editorial advice they got that was worthwhile was from other writers. The first being Murray Kempton, when I showed him, I had written an introduction to Island in the City, sort of saying, how did I get there? How did I happen to live in the neighborhood? Blah, blah, blah. That was Spanish Harlem. Yeah, Spanish Harlem. And I knew the introduction wasn't right, but I really didn't know why. So I went down to see Kempton in Princeton, New Jersey. And we sat one Saturday afternoon, and he read it, and he said, well, let's have a beer. And so we had a beer, and then talking about other things, and he says, here's what you do with the introduction. Take out of it everything that didn't happen to you while you were living in the neighborhood. And that was like magic, because I had all this rhetoric, oh, the plight of the Puerto Ricans, blah, blah, blah. And that Enempo just eliminated all that baloney. And that was one of the great editors. The other great editor was Kurt Vonnegut. And when Sam Lawrence was the publisher who, as Vonnegut said, saved him from smithereens <laughs> and gave him a three-book contract, for Slaughterhouse-Five and the next two books, which, by the way, had been turned down by Vonnegut's three previous publishers. And Sam Lawrence had a one-room office on Beacon Street in Boston. And by the way, he 
had been a great poet. When he was 28, he was the publisher of Atlantic Little Brown, and he made his fame by rescuing the writer, who was it who wrote Ship of Fools? Catherine Ann Porter. Catherine Ann Porter was a great short story writer, but for 25 years she'd been trying to write Ship of Fools and had all these different contracts and never fulfilled them, and everybody had given up. And Sam Lawrence at age 20 went to her and he said, listen, I believe in you. I want you to write this novel. He took her to little inns in New England. He would go visit on the weekend, make sure she was drinking milk and not drinking too much booze. And by God, and Ship of Fools came out of that. And it was published by Atlantic Little Brown, and he went to Little Brown and said, I want a piece of the app. You know, I made this happen, and they, that was not done in those days. And so he quit, and he wanted to start his own publishing company. Well, he, then he got a job as vice president at Knopf, and he always wanted to live in Boston, so he went to Knopf three days a week. That only lasted for six months, and he didn't really like it because... He was in writing contract or something. He wasn't dealing with writers, which is what he loved. So he went to visit J.P. Donnelly, who he first published, Atlantic Little Brown. And he's bemoaning the fact that he wants to have his own. That's the way he's only going to be happy, have his own publishing company. And he can't do it. And Donnelly, he says, why not? And Sam says, well... You know, I don't have any money. My wife has stocks worth $50,000. You can't start a publishing company like that. Donnelly, he said, listen, all you need to start a publishing company is a room, a telephone, and a writer. And I'll be <laughs> the writer. And Sam started Seymour Lawrence, Inc. And got Delacour to be the printer and distributor of the books and had a great list of writers including Vonnegut and Jim Harrison and Jane Ann Phillips and Gish Jen and God knows Tim O'Brien and he had his writers be and so when How I, did he get all those writers? I mean, you he, just listed the kind of loved, great writers of that he era. He loved writers, and he would go to them when nobody else cared about them. That was the story. And I remember you know, there were many, almost all the Jim Harrison was like that. Oh, and a famous one was Frank Conroy. He published Stop Time, one book. It was widely hailed. He never published since. He was like 15 or 20 years old. And Frank uh, and Sam Lawrence with him and says, listen, you're a great writer. I want to publish you. And Conor had written like two short stories something. And there were three or four that weren't published. And so Sam published as a thin book. He did that with Tilly Olson. Mm. Nobody else cared about it. So he it. basically recognized genius when he and, said And he that. would do all I remember he had to take a helicopter to visit Tilly Olson. She was in some mountain town in California or something. But he loved this stuff. 
And, you know, and that was the best thing writers could do, is to have a voter say, we love you, we right. think you're good. So, but when I finished going all the way and, and on Vonnegut's recommendation, and Sam really liked the book, and even made his wife laugh. <laughs> and so, and he gave me this good contrast. Of, well, so who's my editor going to be? Meaning I thought there'd be somebody at Delacorte who'd come in, you know what? And Sam said, who do you want to be, your editor? I said, what do you mean? He says, well, I'm a publisher. I'm not an editor. And I like my writers to be the editors of other writers. Would you like Kurt to be your editor? And I said, well, that would be great. And he said, well, okay, I'll get that. And he called up Kurt and said, I want you to be Dan's editor and going all the way. And Kurt said, well, that's a professional job. What am I going to get paid? And Sam said, what do you want? And Kurt said, I want an Eames chair. <laughs> and Sam said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that'll be the deal. And Kurt wrote me this great letter, which I probably don't have somewhere. I wish I had had it to send to the Lowell Library. But he had 10 suggestions. And he said, don't do any of these because I told you. Only do them if they ring a bell with you, if they seem right. And I'm sure I did seven of the 10. The one I remember... He said, you should have Sonny do something where he physically stands up for Gunner, where he puts himself on the line, not just intellectually. So I created this whole scene where Sonny and Gunner go to a party, and there's this drunk guy who's jealous of Gunner and wants to start a fight, and Sonny stands in between the guy. And nothing happens, but it's like he showed he was willing to stand up physically for Gunner. And that helped. And everything he said, I'm sure, helped. So, so it was basically his editing was a letter with suggestions. When you say editor, I always think of line-by-line line copy yeah, editing. Yeah. And, and, and you, know, you know what's funny? I had an editor on two books who was a very nice guy, very smart guy, and he was one of these guys that put all kind of yellow stickers and tabs in it. But, you know, the books weren't very... I mean, there was something lacking. I mean, yeah, it's really a strange thing, and... I remember once telling C. Michael Curtis that Vonnegut was the editor of the book, and he got very upset. What do you mean, the editor? He went live? No, no, not that. He said, oh, he was the conceptual editor. Yeah, that's right. No, he didn't do the line-by-line line stuff. But sometimes the guys who can do the line-by-line line stuff don't have any vision right. or way to inspire you to the next level. And so it was the confidence. It's like Bob Manning's confidence to say to me one day at his house in Cambridge over a 
cookout and drinking martinis. He was frustrated that it's hard for a magazine to cover the Vietnam War because it's always changing. And then another drink, and maybe we should have a guy write about what the war is doing to this country and travel around America with that in mind, and then another drink, and how would you like to do that? And that became Supernation of Peace and War. I do remember, I ended up in Washington, D.C. to write it, and he had arranged for me to interview Hubert Humphrey and Dean Russ. But I remember he came down to, when I had written the introduction, he hadn't seen it yet, but he wanted to come down and talk to me and see how this was beginning, how it was going. Can I interrupt you for a second? Did Supernation at Peace and War took up an entire issue of The Atlantic? And did you know when you started to write that, that they were going to devote a whole issue to it? So that was the idea from the beginning. That was the idea. And unfortunately, we told the idea that Atlantic Harper had a sales coordination and we told the idea at the sales meeting the previous fall when Willie Morris was there and I know that gave him the idea to have a whole issue of the Harpers for the same month the mailer wrote called The Steps of the Pentagon which then became the book The Armies of the Night and a little known fact is the Atlantic outsold Harper's on the newsstand wow. in March of 1968. So let that let the record show where in the record. But then what I remember was Manning came down. I remember sitting in this little I had a sublet apartment on Capitol Hill, and he read this introduction. And I remember the introduction started out something like. I've just been traveling for four months through a country that is at war with itself or something. I don't remember. And I remember Manning finishing and he said, this is so much what I hoped for. Mm. And that felt great, of course. And then that night, he took me to dinner with, there was a dinner at the home of Tom Wicker of the New York Times and David Brinkley was there. And I remember Manning said to me, Wakefield, it would have taken you 10 years to get to this debtor if it hadn't been for me <laughs> taking you there. And Brinkley was quite nice. And I remember he drove us back to Washington and Manning had introduced us. He said something like, well, David's an old friend. And, and Brinkley, Manning and I were sitting back and Brinkley was driving. He looked back and he said, yes, yeah, some people, he said, You've been friends so long, it doesn't even matter if you like them anymore. You're just (laughs) friends. But that was all. That was great. But also, then interviewing Humphrey and Russ was an education because I had started out thinking I would like Humphrey and I wouldn't like Russ because Russ was sort of thought of as the architect of the Vietnam War, blah, blah, blah. And it ended up just the opposite. That I remember I took a plane trip with Humphrey and talked to him and interviewed him. And, and it was just like 
you didn't get anything original. You it was just pro forma boilerplate kind of language. And Russ was very personal and he sat in his office and he talked about the US justifications. And then at the end he walks me to the door and he says, I hope you don't think I'm as Presbyterian as all that that I sounded. No, no, thank you. And he said, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but during World War II, I dropped parachute supplies for Ho Chi Minh. And it was sort of like he was saying, I'm really a good guy. It was a really amazing moment. And I didn't put that in the piece, which was stupid, but I had to submit, because he was part of the administration, it was like interviewing Goldemar, I had to submit any direct quotes. And so I felt, well, he's not going to like that, but he probably would have, so I loved it. For anyone who doesn't know, could you explain, or just say a little bit about who Dean Rusk was? Well, he was Secretary of State, and he was Secretary of State during the Vietnam War. So he had to be making all these policy statements. I don't know how much he had to do with the decision-making. I think it was Nixon and LBJ and you know, whoever was president, but... When you worked on that article, where did you actually travel? I tried to go to places where I knew people. So I came to Indianapolis, and I remember I had breakfast with Luger. I interviewed Miss Grubb, the advisor to the Shortridge Daily Echo, and I said to her, uh, is there any student I could talk to that's smart that would talk about this? And she said, yeah, there's this great guy who's president of the student council named Pat Nolan. And I interviewed him. He was very nice and smart. And he said, listen, you know, my dad's a lawyer, but he's a writer, too. And uh, he's really a great guy. I wish he'd come home and meet my dad. And it was so shocking to have a student in 1967 right. want you to meet their dad that I did. And then Alan Nolan became a great friend. He was a great man in Indianapolis and in the country. He's a great historian. Yeah, a great historian. He wrote The Iron Brigade about the Indiana guys who fought in the Civil War. And then, more interestingly, he wrote a book called Lee Considered about Robert E. Lee. And he said he called it that. He couldn't call it Lee Reconsidered because nobody had ever really looked at Lee objectively. They just regarded him as a superhero. And Alan really critically looked at his conduct the war and his statements before and after. And it was so strong that 
it was a selection of the Civil War Book Club. And the head of the Civil War Book Club at Atlanta recommended that the book be burned. Really? Yeah. Advised all the book club members. So, and Alan Nolan, I'll remember, I was not there, but I remember hearing about this from Evans Wollen, the architect who was from here, and he was one of his clients, and for some reason, uh, Evans Wollen had to testify before some committee in Washington, and Alan went with him as a lawyer, and Evans was telling me the story that the senators or whoever were on this committee were questioning Evans, but they weren't paying any attention to Alan. And at one point, Alan stood up and he said, I am not a potted plant. (laughs) (laughs) I am here as Mr. Rowland's attorney. And so they started asking him questions. I'm not a potted plant. That's great. Oh, and a, a thing that's important, I think, in that era in the 60s, when I was writing for Esquire, and Talese and my friend Brock Brower, who's always been underestimated and always makes me mad. Many of his daughters, he had four or five daughters and one son, and several of his daughters worked for magazines. And I know one was editor of Red Book, and, but they're all over the place and very smart. And he wrote some of the best pieces for Esquires in those days. He wrote a great profile of Alger Hiss after Alger Hiss was out of the government and was working as a stationary salesman. And Harold Hayes, this was one of his great ideas as an editor, he said to Brock, I want you to write about Alger Hiss but not about the case. We don't want to drag up the case again, so the piece should be called His Without the Case. Ah. And it was a great piece. And then he wrote a great profile of Mary McCarthy. And I remember the way it began was Mary McCarthy has the nicest smile. She can talk through it. She can eat through it. She can give lectures through it. She can even smile through it. And he wrote a great piece on men here in America who had fought in the Lincoln Brigade in the Spanish Civil War. That was guys who volunteered to fight for the government in Spain that was fighting Franco and losing, but many Americans went. I knew one of them, in fact, Vonnegut knew him too, a guy named John Murrah, who, when I knew him, taught at Vassar and was a great guy. And anyway, it's a shame. And so the, the piece Brock wrote about the Americans who fought in the Lincoln Brigade was called Other Loyalties. 
and he had a collection of pieces published called Other Loyalties. And he was one of the great journalists of that era, unsung. He later wrote a novel that got some acclaim called The Late Great Preacher, and it came out of Esquire had assigned him to do a profile of Peter Lorre in Hollywood, and somehow out of that was the idea of this novel. And the novel was published just about five or six years ago, republished in Germany, so thank goodness for that. But what I wanted to say with all this is that Gates Elise's wife, Nan, said to me, and I think when I interviewed him for New York in the 50s, and I interviewed her, and she said, you know, the great thing was in that era, you all read each other. And that was true. You know, we all knew each other. We knew what we were doing. We were judging our work and others' work, but we paid attention we respected each other. So you think that was kind of a critical mass, like, you know, Paris in the 30s, where because you were all together one time discovering the new journalism and approaching magazine profiles as kind of a high art, do you think you all were better for that? Yes, yeah. And we were better for Harold Hayes, giving us the confidence to do that and giving us the financial backing. You know, Talese wrote the great profiles of Sinatra. In fact, that was voted the best story ever in Escar called Frank Sinatra has a cold. And he did a great profile of Joe DiMaggio, and both of them refused to speak to him. So he had to stay out in San Francisco or L.A. And he even one way that he got to write about Joe DiMaggio, he got a job as a caddy, caddying for oh, DiMaggio. So it wasn't, he wasn't officially writing the profile as yeah. far as the yeah. person he was covering was yeah. concerned. He had to. And then. That's so interesting. But also, this is an amazing story. I was back in New York in 92 to 95, and my agent was Lynn Nesbitt, and she was like the most powerful agent in the world. She represented Madonna, <laughs> among other people. And she kind of took me under her wing during that three-year period. And at one point, she called up and said, uh, listen, Dan, what are you doing Thursday night? I said, oh, I don't know, because I never knew. And she said, well, I, there's a woman friend of mine. She really needs to get out. She's gone through a very bad breakup, blah, 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 blah. And I want you just, I told her, she needs to get out. And after you just have dinner. And you meet us at Elio's. That was Estelia's, the restaurant. And, and I'll be with Mia. And then of this other writer, and you will be our. So that was the way it met Mia Farrell. Mm. So it was very interesting, and she's very bright and entertaining. And after the dinner, the four of us are outside, 
and me and the other writer are going downtown, and the two women are going uptown to get a cab. So I said goodbye to me. I said, I, you know, that was really nice, truly appreciated meeting you. And she leans over and whispers, why don't you give me a call? So I thought, oh, Jesus, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> so I called up Lynn the next day and said, Mia said to give her a call. What am I supposed to do? She said, well, you call her up. Here's the number. Call her between 4 and 6 Thursday afternoon and uh, just take her to dinner. I said, well, where should I take her to dinner? She said, anyway, where do you take anybody? <laughs> so I thought, well, I'll just do that. You know, I'll... So I used to take people to a little French restaurant in the village near where I live. So I got me and I took her down there. And of course, I'm bent on the fact of not saying the word Woody. So it was the breakup yeah, with Woody and not the one with Frank. So in this little restaurant, people were very nice. Nobody made a big deal, but there was a table empty next to our right, and then one table with a young couple, and they kept looking at us and smiling. So I didn't think much of it. And the next day, a friend calls me up and says, have you read page six of the New York Post today? That was the society gossip column. I said, well, you better go get it. So I looked out and it said, Mia Farrow was seen last night at the such and such French restaurant in the village with an unidentified companion. <laughs> so I always thought that would be a great title for my memoir. That's a great title for companion. your memoir. <laughs> but anyway, so me and I had this series of dinners, and they're very pleasant. And she liked it because wherever I would take her, there were never any paparazzi because they weren't that kind of rest. So then I, but I began to think after about five or six. I got to introduce her to somebody. Who do I know? And the only people I could think of who like rank and prestige were the Talises. So I arranged that the four of us meet. And that I wish I had a tape recorder for because we sat down and I said, Man, this is gay Talise. She says, Oh, yes, you wrote that mean piece about Frank. He says, oh. yes, he says, he wouldn't speak to me. You know why he wouldn't speak to me? She says, well, sure, because you're a reporter. He says, oh, no, that wasn't it. He wouldn't speak to me because I'm an Italian and I don't work for him. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so wait, is this Frank Sinatra has a cult, the article that he wrote while following Frank Sinatra? Right. Right. Around. That's right. yeah. so interesting because it's, you know, I was thinking, you mentioned the word paparazzi. Yeah. You know, how different that is from what we think of as like National Enquirer or paparazzi, like, or somebody, you know, going around with a camera or something. But still, there's something sort of similar to, you know, trying to get the overheard conversation when. The yeah. person's not aware of it? Well, no. I mean, Sinatra was well aware that Talese was writing this. Oh, okay. But he wouldn't speak to him. He knew that Talese was interviewing everybody he could. 
and following him and looking. There was no secret. There about was no it. secret. That's no, interesting. None, none good whatsoever. And it wasn't like he was getting some scoop that oh, some terrible thing Sinatra did. No, it's just like this is the guy he is, right? And this is how he. Sort of like if you've been watching Jordan rules, you know, like this is the main guy and whoever is around him is not the main guy. And anyway, but part of that story that night, after I was terrified the evening's going to explode or something and somebody will walk out, but then Mia started telling Frank's story. And she liked him, and always, evidently, they were always congenial, but some other thing came up about, well, how did they break up or something? And she says, well, since I was with Frank in Vegas one night, we'd been drinking a lot, he'd been drinking a whole lot, and I was with him on a golf cart. It was about three in the morning, and... We were heading, he was driving the golf cart straight ahead to a plate glass window of a hotel. She said, and I was thinking, I better make a plan. <laughs> so that was a uh, funny. That was a great evening. That's great. So how did you make the turn. I mean, that it sounds like there was a period of time when you were primarily living as a journalist, really. And did you make a decision to leave New York and to leave Boston and to no longer kind of live in that world? Well, was it the novel or did you, it, wasn't it wasn't like, like I that? I made a decision to live in that world. All this time, I'm trying to write a novel. All the time. When I'm not writing articles and when I have a weekend or a night or something, and none of it's working. But then, see, after I wrote Super Nation, I was a guest professor at the University of Illinois Journalism School for one semester, spring of 68. And that's when the Atlantic Beach came up. So anyway, I'm sitting there in my office, and I'm talking on the phone to Joan Didion and John Dunn. And I had gotten to know Joan well in New York. And then when she married John, I got to know him. And I knew she wanted to write a novel, and I wanted to write a novel. And so I'm calling them up. I said, listen. I've got some money coming from Supernation because it's going to come out as a book and I've got to write the novel. This is it, now or never. And I don't know where to go. And Jones said, well, come out here. You can house it for us. We're going to be in Hawaii for two weeks. And then John said, yeah, and then I can find you an apartment in Venice, California. And I said, okay, I'll do that. So I went out there. I house sat while they're in Hawaii. In fact, it happened to be, I got there the night 
that Bobby Kennedy was shot. Mm. And I remember there was some kind of rioting and flames over the city, and I'm thinking, okay, how am I going to defend their house? Anyway, I also, for the record, I remember that. So it's this empty house, and I go up, and I look in the bedroom. That's where Joan works, and she's got a typewriter table set up in the middle of the room, and there's one page in it, about three quarters done. And I go over and look, and the first sentence says, some people ask why Iago was evil. I never asked. So that was the first page of what became play it as it lays. And I wasn't going to read it. I thought it would be cheating to read any further, but I knew she was starting her novel. So... Anyway, they got back. John got me this great apartment in Venice on Oceanfront Walk. Then forwarded to me magically from Boston address to the Atlantic to Illinois to the Duns. It's a letter from the Rockefeller Foundation saying, we want to give you a grant to write a book. Tell us what the book is. Well, I knew they were inviting me to do that because of Supernation. So I figured I can't ask them for a grant to write a novel. So I made up a thing. I said I would go to Paris and write about student revolt. So anyway, they said, so, okay, you have to have the proposal. Then you have to give us a budget of what. So I made up a budget of what it would really cost me the way I live. And so I showed it to the Duns. On Earthia, they called me into the John's basement office and said, Wakefield, you're never going to get this grant. I said, why not? I said, you're not asking for enough money. <laughs> I said, well, how much should I ask for? They said, double that. So I did, and I got the grant. That really enabled oh, me yeah. to write going all the way. So I lived in Venice until about January. Then I went to Boston. I wrote at an office in the Atlantic Monthly. I would go in every morning when everybody else went in, have lunch when everybody else did. And then I would leave with the janitor closing up, go with them to have a pizza and a beer, Joe and turn a cola, and then get up the next day and do the same thing. That's all I did finished at the end of the summer. So I can show you in there on my wall of a wonderful woman who was Manning's secretary made me, took a page from Time Magazine with the October, I think it was 5th, 1970 Time Magazine bestseller list and fiction Plays of Lays was number seven, and Going All the Way was number ten. Ah. So, uh... You really have had, knock on wood, a charmed life. Yes. You really have. Yeah, yeah. It's I, been amazing. Getting that grant right when you needed it, when you didn't even really have to ask for it. I mean, yeah. it was it was a great, great thing. And even just, you know, having met all the people that you talked about this hour. And then 
coming back here and doing these. Yeah. It's amazing. So let me just ask you one more thing. Mm. From that era, I don't think you talked yet about Billy Jean King or oh. Joan Baez or Jimmy the Greek if you went to. Yeah. The person I least enjoyed interviewing with Joan Baez and she at the time she was in New York to do some recording of songs which she did wonderfully but interviewing her she traveled at the time with an older guy who was like her political consultant and I had been assigned to do this by Red Book magazine so when I met her, I had just published a book of articles called Between the Lines, and I gave her a copy of the article I read. And she was very dismissive. She referred to me as Mr. Redbook. <laughs> and every time there was a question of over her head, she would have her advisor tell me she was a real jerk. And I love the piece Joan Didion wrote about her. She had some little phony peace camp in California. And Joan's article was called, Where the Kissing Never Stops. Mm -hmm. Anyway, yeah, that was the only person I interviewed that I came away thinking was a real jerk. That's too bad. But Billie Jean King was fascinating, and it took me a long time to realize why she was very cool during several interviews. I didn't know until recently when a guy writing for some advertising magazine called me up and wanted to ask me about writing the Billie Jean King piece because it was based on that I had seen her in a full-page ad for Colgate toothpaste, and I thought she looked very sexy and attractive and interesting. And so I went to Harold Hayes and said, I want to write about Bojie. Well, I didn't know. Harold had already figured out the title, and he told her manager getting me the interview that the title was going to be Dan Wakefield's Love Affair with Billy Jean. Oh. <laughs> so, as I say, I couldn't imagine why she was. Now I, I understand. And I remember and reading the piece, I evidently interviewed her twice. Once when I was out writing a script of the novel Starting Over, which didn't get made, and a crappy movie got made instead. But anyway, that article, I couldn't believe it. I just read it a couple of months ago. And, well, for one thing, I loved it in the sense that you could tell, well, when... A writer who writes for Vanity Fair named Lily Anolik interviewed me for a piece about Eve Babbitts and then wrote a book about Eve Babbitts. And she described when I met Eve Babbitts, I just published 
supernation and going all the way. He said, and Dan Wakefield was riding high. Mm-hmm. Yes. And just reading that article, I thought, oh, my God, that was me. I mean, I was so confident. I was so, it was amazing to read. And in the article, I said all kinds of things that I'd be put in jail now for. I mean, I said I had gone to a party, and I went up to two or three people, men and women, at the party and said, hey, I'm doing this piece on Billie Jean King. I want to ask you something. Who would you rather sleep with? Yvonne Gulagong, Chrissy Everett, or Billy Jean King. That's in the article. That's in the article. <laughs> it was kind of, I mean, that era. Yes. It, it's just sometimes when you look back at some era you've lived through, you think, how in the world mm. could I have become, yeah. you know, that person then? Yeah. You might have wondered that in later eras, but... You not only wouldn't ask it, the idea of putting it in a magazine and of the magazine publishing Publishing it was crazed. Completely crazed. Oh, but one of my great memories of doing that piece is that I did, I went to the Billie Jean King Bobby Riggs match in Houston and I had gotten to know in Boston a reporter named Bud Collins, who became a nationally known tennis writer. And he took me and some other journalists to dinner at whatever was the fancy restaurant in Houston. And we were all very impressed because across the room, guy waves at him and then sends a bottle of champagne to our table, and it was Jimmy the Greek, Mm -hmm. the famous gambler. So we were all impressed, and then we ordered more champagne of the kind. Give us another one of those bottles. Then we realized Jimmy the Greek had something going on with the restaurant because it was a very expensive bottle of champagne, and like fools, we ordered more of the same. But yeah, that was a whole, that was like a circus, that whole match. And uh, I remember that. Yeah. But that was fun. That was a lot of fun. So I guess that's everything I know. Thank you. Thanks again to Mr. Wakefield, and thank you to our listeners for listening. Naptown is taped at Butler University's Irwin Library with the help of Megan Rutledge-Grady. Funding for Naptown was provided by the Ayers Fund, National Endowment for the Humanities, and Indiana Humanities. This is a Dominique Weldon, Rory Deshmer production. Again, this is your host, Susan Neville. See you next time in Naptown.